Welcome to Then and Now, a podcast by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We study change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every other week, we examine the most pressing issues of the day through a historical lens, helping us understand what happened then and what that means for us now. Hello, I'm David Myers, and I'm pleased to welcome you to this episode of Then and Now. We're going to be talking about the COVID-19 pandemic and where we're at today. Our guest is Dr. Sharon Balter, who since 2018 has served as director of the Division of Communicable Disease Control and Prevention at the LA County Department of Health. As of February 2020, she has also directed the Incident Command Surveillance and Epidemiology Unit of the LA County Department of Health, where she is responsible for overseeing the collection of data related to COVID-19. Before coming to LA, Dr. Balter worked for more than 15 years for the Bureau of Communicable Disease in the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. And before that, she worked for the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta. Dr. Sharon Balter is on the front line of the great public health crisis of our lifetime, for which we thank you. Uh, and welcome to Then and Now, Dr. Balter. Thank you. So let's begin um, at the beginning. What brought you to the study and treatment of communicable diseases, especially as an English major coming out of college? Well, you know, I'll be frank and say I went to med school under great family pressure, like many people. So I didn't go with the idea that, oh, I always wanted to be a surgeon or I always wanted to um, be a pediatrician, as, as many people in medical school did. I, I went with the idea that I was becoming a doctor and um I went to medical school in New York City in the in the early 90s. Um, it was a period in which there were a tremendous number of infectious diseases. It was really the worst, one of the worst periods of the HIV epidemic before we had highly active antiretroviral therapy. Um, there was also a TB um, epidemic that kind of met it. People had considered TB solved. And then when um, HIV came, it came out that it was not solved. Um, and then I trained in Seattle uh, where a lot of public health interventions had really made a difference in, in the AIDS pandemic in a way that had, it hadn't happened in, in New York. There had been a lot of work with um, needle exchange and it was a very public health minded city. A number of my uh, professors had done a program called the Epidemic Intelligence Service at the Centers for Disease Control, which is the entry level fellowship. Um, and um, I think that after seeing so much suffering from communicable diseases, um, I, it, it was really appealing to me to do something that was more about prevention and public health. Um, so I went on to do the uh, the EIS fellowship, as we called it, um, at CDC, and then I stayed there for a couple of years before moving on to back to New York City. Is there something about the problem-solving nature of epidemiology that appeals? I mean, it seems like it's a puzzle that one tries to figure out, always being a step or two behind uh, the latest iteration of the of the threat, but. I could imagine it being intellectually interesting in that way, in addition to being a, a great service to the public. Yeah, I mean, there's two things that I think I really love about it. One is you really get, especially in local public health, which is what I've been drawn to, you really get to know a community. We used to joke in New York City, we wanted to get to the end of every subway line and here it's to the end of every freeway. You know, you really get to know 
different parts of the community that you wouldn't have otherwise. And that, yes, the solving of the puzzle is a great thing. That moment when you solve an outbreak, this sort of yes moment, it's it's incredibly satisfying. Um, and it's interesting because I am not one who loves puzzles on the side. I, I never do the crossword puzzle. And, you know, I, I some members of my family will sit around and do jigsaw puzzles. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Um, but in work, I love it. <laughs> you have a bigger canvas to work with, I suppose. Um, and, you know, just say a little bit more about the local nature of it. You've moved from New York, where you spent uh, a good portion of your career, to Los Angeles, um, two of the great uh, metropolitan areas uh, in the world. Um, what What's the comparison like? What And, and, and what's what are the commonalities um, at, about working at the local level, which you, you mentioned? Well, the the basic commonality about working at the local level are the two things that I said I love. You get you get to know the community in a way that you wouldn't. You go to places you wouldn't go. I mean, you know, in both New York and LA, we tend to live in our little neighborhood. Um, but in in this job, you know, I was drawn out to different different communities, and that you know, you go to schools and TV stations and movie theaters and the backs of restaurants and places you would never go ordinarily. So I that's common wherever you go. Um, I think the the big things, there's two big things that are different. One is the sort of the, the physical scale of LA is much larger than in New York. New York was incredibly dense. We were 321 square miles. And here's like 2000 square miles because um, we do the whole county. Um, and there's far more outdoors here. So your interaction with the outdoors is much greater. And of course, that is a potential for a different set of organisms. Um, typhus, for example, which was big a couple of years ago here, was not big in New York. So, so there's, there's that as well that's um, different. But the other, I would say, really big thing, and, and this figures a lot in the pandemic, is the structure of government is very different here. And I don't think I appreciated that until I came. Um, in New York, it's a very standard. There's a mayor, and the mayor appoints the commissioner. The commissioner turns over every 48 years. It's very, very, um, I would say, traditional. Here we have a board of supervisors. There are five independently elected supervisors who are not necessarily um, even of the same party. Um, and then there's 88 mayors. Uh, so it's just, it's very, very different, a much more cacophonous way, I would say, of, of governing. And because public health and government go together, um, I think that has a bigger impact on what we do than than I understood before I came. And it's been super interesting that way. And it sounds just as a structural matter, far more challenging. I think it is. I mean, I think I see the pros and cons of both in that, um, you know, if you have a good mayor, uh, then you're in a great situation in the mayoral setup. But if you have a bad mayor, you're in a really bad situation. So when it's good, it's very, very good. When it's bad, it's very, very bad. And I assume that the um, Board of Supervisors structure in some ways was set up to try to um, sort of live in the middle. Um, but again, it it is more challenging, I think. Yeah, I want to get back to the structure of our public health system in the country a bit later, but um, I'm curious to know, what was your life like really on a daily basis before the COVID-19 epidemic? Um, was it calm and tranquil uh, and you had nary a worry in the world or was it, you know, batting back crisis after crisis and this one just is a little bit bigger in scale? Well, to a certain extent, you know, public health involves a lot of different sections. You know, there's people who work on maternal child health and people who work on chronic disease. And, and those of us who work on communicable diseases, 
um, especially the acute communicable diseases, are used to batting off a certain number of crises. So, you know, when I arrived, I arrived in the middle of the um, Hepe uh, outbreaks in Southern California, and then there was the measles outbreak. And of course, they all seem small now in 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 response. And, you know, there was a period where we were doing nothing but COVID. And I said, I don't remember what I did. I guess everything in my previous life was trading for this. To a certain extent, that was true. But then, you know, there are always things going on. That's part of what we love about it, right? There's always something new and interesting to learn about um, that you hadn't thought of before. Uh, and yes, it was all, to a certain extent, training for this as well. Yeah. So, you know, just an observation about um, about the pandemic from a very amateur perspective. It seems like whatever we knew last month turns out not to have been so. Uh, knowledge is very fleeting um, and uh, on rocky ground. Um, we're, we're constantly displacing, you know, our, our established truisms with new ones. Um, there, there is a quality to that, it seems to me, in the, in, in the COVID-19 pandemic, we're constantly revising and updating and, and overturning. Is that actually the case? Or is there a growing and aggregating baseline of knowledge about what the coronavirus is and how it acts that you know extends back to those first winter months of 2020? I think both are true. I think what has been challenging both for us and especially for the public is that this was new and we didn't know all the answers when it showed up. We know a lot more now than we did then. And we will probably know more in a year than we know now. Um, and that is the way science always works. This is true for other organisms too. It just has less of an impact. Um, you know, I gave the example of the AIDS pandemic earlier and that was also true for that. Um, many people of course don't remember it or don't remember it as vividly. Um, but there was a lot we didn't know at the, begin, at the beginning then. And, and it is challenging. I mean, many of us had, I um, mean, you know, I joked about everything I'd ever done preparing for this, but, you know, we had studied other pandemics. We all were aware of the potential for such a pandemic, um, especially after SARS and MERS and other similar pandemics. Um, but you can never be truly prepared because you don't know the answers when it shows up and you, you have to learn as you go. And it's challenging um, for everyone. Yeah. And it seems especially challenging um, when one has to communicate effectively yeah. to a yes. wide public audience. Um, you know, there's been a lot of attention focused on um, sort of the confusing communications that have been coming from federal agencies, particularly the CDC. Um, I wonder what your sense is of how communications uh, as a enterprise has gone during the COVID-19 pandemic? Um, and how has it gone um, in your shop at the county level? How do you think you've been on it? What, what would, how would you grade yourselves? Well, you know, again, there, there's been a challenge as we learned, as we went. And I think, you know, everybody will remember at the beginning of the pandemic when we said, if people aren't symptomatic, it's not communicable. You know, does everybody wish that we hadn't said that? Of course we wish that. <laughs> That was what we knew based on the available information at the time. And we can look back and say, hmm. Um, and uh, the same issue with the masks. I think the masks were more challenging because um, 
at the time, we also, we, we were suffering these terrible shortages. I, I don't know if people even remember them at this point. It's funny, I was talking to my family about it, you know, the grocery shortages, et cetera. And, um, people had, have already forgotten them. Um, but in the hospitals, it was particularly severe, you know, the, the fear of the masks and, and the risks to the healthcare workers who we knew were at greatest risk and who we needed. Um, so, it, you know, it was complicated there as well in terms of, messaging and of knowing if things would make a difference. And we definitely, you know, again, wish we knew now what we did then. I, I think to, to me and what I've always been trained in, in public health is the most important thing is to be transparent, to share with people what you know, when you know it. Um, people often in an emergency, in a terrifying situation, they want to be told what to do. And we don't always have all of those answers. I think, you know, the health department had, in LA has really, really tried to be transparent, not just in our messaging about things like masks and what you should do, but um, with our data too. We've put an unprecedented amount of data out on our website for everyone to see, for researchers to be able to download. Um, yeah, I've heard from other jurisdictions or from academics and people in the media, they're like, wow, you put so much out. Why doesn't everyone do this? So I think our goal has really been to be as transparent as possible. You know, the messaging also, there's our messaging, but in this world, you know, I, I think there was a time maybe when most people got their messages from the local news, but it's a cacophonous world now, and there's many places to get messages. And we do compete with all of those, unfortunately, or fortunately, because sometimes other people have a better way of saying things. How would you grade the CDC on its messaging? You know, I think this, you know, I'll be honest, I have many good friends at the CDC because I once worked there. Um, and, and they had a lot of challenges in this pandemic. Um, and again, I think everybody knows that, you know, politics definitely played an effort, but I do, and, and had an impact. I do think that they really, even through all of it, have tried to message based on data, or at least tried to, to gather data. I know there've been a, a lot of, criticisms over the way it came out. Um, and we didn't always agree with their message. I think more recently we pulled back on the masking guidance, you know, before they did. Um, I think though disagreement about some of these things as we figure it out is part of coming to, to the right answer. Which is a constantly evolving proposition. Um, there's, not, there's not a moment at which we arrive at the fixed uh, answer and then it will never change. Right, which complicates the messaging a lot. Um, I'm wondering, you know, in light of the differing um, messages that have been put out, what you think about, how you reflect upon the state of the public health system in this country. I I'm struck by what seems to me a form of um, kind of uh, medical federalism, where you have these different jurisdictions, you have federal, state, county, local health units, um, without a single overarching, or I should say seamless uh, machine uh, that can leap into action in a moment of crisis like this. You know, when you talked about uh, LA County versus New York, um, you suggested that, you know, that kind of not being so reliant on a single authority could work to your benefit. Yes. Um, so I'm wondering what, you know, do we need uh, a national health service like the UK has, um, you know, a much more unified, um, putting aside the economics of it, just in terms of the efficiency of the output? Is that what we need? Um, is our fission hopelessly inefficient? How do you see it? 
as someone who's operated at both federal and local levels? Yeah, I, I don't think it's all or nothing. And I don't, I, I would put out that I, you know, I, I think it was easy, again, the pandemic has evolved. It was easy at the beginning of the pandemic to say, oh, we're doing it all wrong. And um, Australia's doing it all right, um, which maybe was true at the beginning of the pandemic. It's not as clear now, you know? Um, so I don't know. Even New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and, they, and they had an advantage, you know, they were islands thousands of miles from anywhere. Um, we are we are not. I know at one point when things got really bad in Los Angeles and somebody from another jurisdiction who I will not um, name said, oh, we feel so bad for you. And I was thinking, well, we're not exactly an island off the coast. You know, <laughs> What happens here is, going, is coming your way. So um, the. I don't know that, again, we didn't know all the answers and nobody had the exact answers. And I, I think that has become more and more true. COVID is incredibly challenging. And some people had some of the right answers at some moments and some of us had it at other moments. Um, you know, I, I saw one of your questions was, have we been wrong during the pandemic? Everybody has been wrong at points. You have to be humble in the face of COVID. Um, it's it's new. We haven't had it before. We can't possibly have all of the answers. And anyone told told you they did, I'm skeptical of. You know. So um, so and then in terms of whether we should have national health service. So while national health service involves a lot of different things, usually we think of it in terms of the delivery of medical care. Um, it, where there's there's a delivery of medical care and there's a public health system. We're a very large country. Um, and one advantage of a national health service, of course, is that you have access to all of the data very easily in one system, and we don't have that. We could work to overcome that through, um, you know, improvement in our data systems and structures. And I, I think one thing that's been clear during the pandemic is, much as in the early 90s it came out that we hadn't solved all of our public health infectious disease programs, so there, there hasn't been the the investment in public health infrastructure that we should have had. And some of these things really can be overcome with that. Um, it doesn't mean that we have to adopt um, a national health service, which could have a lot of benefits separate from that, but it's not. I don't think it's required to do this work well. Um, but what is important is to put, maybe a national health service would lead to the investment of those resources, but those resources can be invested separately in public health. Um, if we want to. And I think now we're making that effort to do that. I, I think that what's important, though, is that we don't just do it now. You oversee the collection of massive amounts of data. Um, so you ha you can see what the potential is to scale that up on the federal level. Um, I'm, I imagine you also encounter um, the fact that data collection is itself political, right? And some people... Some people don't want data to be collected, you know, in the same kind of capacious way, um, and some people don't trust government to be the collector of data. So, what's that? What's that been like for you as someone who's presiding over the huge amounts of data? I will say, with COVID, there has been, I think, a little less of that than maybe there was with HIV. Um, I I think that in general, people recognize that infectious diseases, particularly communicable diseases like this. Um, is is one of the few areas where you are going to need government to do this. Uh, not everyone, I mean, but that, that 
the actual, I think the things that people have objected to have been less about the collection of data than about um, how to control the pandemic. That, that's what I would say. I think that most people see that there isn't clearly another entity that can um, that can do what government does um, for pandemics. And I, and I generally think, I mean, health departments, again, do a lot of things. They inspect restaurants, they, you know, regulate drinking water, they do all kinds of things. But, um, and some of them are controversial. I know, um, you know, like some of the efforts the health department did in New York City were controversial. The one that tends not to be controversial is uh, investigating outbreaks. And that's generally the origin of most health departments um, is to try to control it. Hmm. Well, let's hope it stays that way um, in our highly polarized political world. Um, so maybe you can tell us what your sense of uh, the following is. Wh where are we now in the arc of the pandemic? Um, where are we now in LA County? Um, we seem to be in a pretty good place. Where are we at in the country? And where are we at in the world? All of which are three very different um, domains and responses, perhaps. Well, um, I think. I wish I could tell you for sure the answer to any of those questions, because of course it's new and we are experiencing it. And someday we hope that somebody will read this in the history book and be able to say where we are in the arc. Um, we, we are somewhere. Um, right now, this week, things are, you know, we've, we've seen ups and downs in our number of cases. I saw a meme that referred to it as the Corona coaster. Um, what goes up comes down and likewise. Um, things are, coming down here in Los Angeles. I think in Los Angeles, we've been pretty good about getting, you know, people have been pretty good about getting vaccinated. People are fairly compliant with mask wearing. I think that has served us well. We, during the period where we didn't know anything and the only way to control things was to lock down. We, we were pretty compliant with that. And I, I think that helped, which is not to say we didn't have a terrible winter because we did. Um, we're in better shape because of that. Um, the, there are parts of the country I know where they've struggled with encouraging people to get vaccinated and to wear masks. And those parts of the country are suffering more. And then much of the world doesn't even have access to vaccines. Um, and, you know, this is going to remain a, a problem and a source of, you know, new variants probably for years to come until we can produce enough vaccines and encourage enough people to get vaccinated. Yeah, what does that last criterion or factor look like to to you who who operate really you know in this intense local environment? What what do you think about you know our our, our global responsibility? I mean, is it not an urgent both moral and public health imperative to get vaccines to the rest of the world at at, at rates that we Americans you know as much as we may lament that it's not as high as we want at the Super, supremely high rates that, that we have here relative to most of the world. It is, you know, it is. And um, I think we all have a different role that we're given or assigned in the pandemic. Um, the role that I have or I'm assigned is, is a local one to Los Angeles where we haven't vaccinated everyone. Um, and so continuing to try to vaccinate more people is definitely a legitimate goal. Um, I think, you know, I know that many people are working on this other issue of how do we make sure there are enough vaccines 
to get to everyone. And, you know, this is always, I would say, a moral issue, but now it's a collective issue because the solution to the pandemic is really to get everyone vaccinated. We can't just vaccinate ourselves. And everybody, I think, sees that, especially um, since Delta came. And in that regard, what do you think about the new spate of vaccine mandates at local and federal levels? Um, Good public policy. um, And, you know, if you think so, which I imagine you do, um, I'm just wondering how you look upon the large number of people who are unvaccinated, including a fair number of whom choose not to be vaccinated. It's hard not to be judgmental, no? Yeah, well, you can be in favor of vaccine mandates and still be empathetic with people. Um, You have to imagine people coming at this from many different places. You know, I, I come at it as a physician who has many years of education and experience in public health. So I was eager to get vaccinated. I can't wait until my child turns 12, you know, to get vaccinated. So, um, but not everyone comes to it that way. And I, and I think that more and more as even having less to do with COVID, as vaccine hesitancy has built in the United States, I, I think there has been an understanding that you need to, to meet people where they are and understand what their concerns are um, to try to help them. I mean, it's, you know, it's tragic when you read these articles in the paper about people who didn't want to get vaccinated and then just before they died said they wanted to or wanted their family to, you know, that it doesn't, it just makes me sad. So um, it's, a, it's something that we all continually need to work on so that when, you know, when you say, well, there's the whole rest of the world, well, each one of us can only work on their own small part of the world. I'm just thinking more about, you know, the, 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 the really balancing between um, you know, the impulse to mandate and the very admirable empathy, which you just evinced. Um, do you at the county level deal with um, a lot of deliberate disinformation uh, about the uh, vaccine? Do you sort of get mired in those wars, as it were? Well, I think we try to put out good information. I mean, it's not so much a war. We're putting out information and other people are putting out information and we we hope that people will listen to us. I think that the mandates can sometimes help people who are on the fence. People will say to us, you know, if my job requires it, I'll do it. Um, I think people, some people who don't do it are genuinely scared. Um, I always describe during H1N1, um, a colleague and I were pregnant and it was hard to find the vaccine and I found it for both of us. And I remember her sitting in the waiting room saying, I know it's the right thing to do, but it still feels scary. And I think that the mandates can help people even like they want to, but they're afraid. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, there's some people I think just aren't that worried about COVID. I spent my entire day thinking about COVID <laughs> and I've been doing that for the last 18 months. Um, for some people, COVID isn't such a big deal. They're young, they're healthy, their family members got it, weren't that sick. Um, and it's not that they object to the vaccine, it's that they have other stuff going on in their lives and they just haven't bothered to do it. And the mandates will also encourage them. Mm-hmm. Um, and what about kids? Um, what about you know the LAUSD mandate uh, for kids over twelve? And I guess more generally, how do you feel about 
uh, what we know about kids and COVID? Do you feel like we're in a good place um, or we still are in desperate need of more knowledge? We're always in need of more knowledge because I think, you know, COVID is also changing. When you talked about our knowledge is changing, COVID is changing. And that's what we saw with Delta. Um, I think that the risk is a lot lower for children than it is for adults. That's clear. That doesn't seem to have changed with Delta. It's one of the reasons that I think the FDA has um, said, you know, we, we're not going to authorize this until we really see the data. Um, that said, as I just said, I would like to get my own child vaccinated. Um, I think that the mandates will help keep everyone safer. I mean, there is there is the fact that, and this has come up a lot with breakthrough, um, the vaccines don't completely prevent you from getting COVID. They um, mostly prevent you from getting severe COVID. And even then there can be breakthrough cases. Um, this is what we initially thought when they came up with the vaccines you were concerned about. Before Delta, it seemed like they were doing better than we had expected. After Delta, it's clear that that's what's going on. So the less COVID there is in any community, the less likely anyone, vaccinated or unvaccinated, is to get it. And it protects everyone. It's a, it's something that we do collectively and as a community. Um, and so I am, again, in favor of mandates. And then, yes, I... I was in favor of the LA um, USD mandate as well. And do you have thoughts about uh, booster, um, especially in light of um, recent reports in today's New York Times that uh, some federal officials uh, were not supportive of uh, of the Biden administration's uh, desire to move ahead with? Uh, a- I do think it's important to to work with the process and see all of the data, not all of which I've seen. Um, You know, the Biden administration did make announcements before um, the FDA and the ACIP had, and I am in favor of working through the process and looking at the data um, to make sure that it is the right decision. Mm, Okay. Um, Do you think we're likely to see, I know prognosticating is, you know, an impossible task, but um, are we likely to see more powerful variants than Delta um, in the COVID-19 uh, well, and- it, anything is possible. It's the natural world. Um, I think that a lot of the, the variants that we've seen have been somewhat similar to each other. So, um, you know, we can hope not. Hope is not strategy. It's one of my favorite phrases. So um, the thing that's really important is that we stay on top of the data. And that comes back to that investment in public health infrastructure um, to be able to follow the whole genome sequencing to detect when we have variants, to link that to the epi data so we can tell who's getting the variant. Um, are these people who are vaccinated? Are they more likely to die? Are they younger? You know, is there a group of people we should be most worried about? I think we are going to have to stay on top of that for a long time to come. Um, and that's where I'm hopeful that we can make some of the investments in public health infrastructure. They're not only important for COVID, but also for other organisms as well. Um, I'm curious to know what a typical day looks like for you in the COVID era. Yeah, in the COVID era. Unfortunately, a lot of my days spent on Zoom um, or on, on calls. Um, I, I have kind of risen to a level in public health where I get out into the field less than some people. Um, during during the beginning of the vaccinations, we were all out vaccinating as well as being on Zoom. Um, but a lot of it is spending time um, working with different groups, working with my team. You know, there's a hospital group and helping them uh, to connect to different 
uh, places of putting all the pieces together, uh, of working with the data groups to see what the data is showing, of making sure that our um, directors and the CDC see this data. Because again, you know, at the local level, we can see data. And this is part of what I love about local public health is we can see what's happening sometimes faster than, um, than anyone because the data comes directly to us. So, you know, making sure that um, the people above us know about that, making sure the CDC knows about that, um, and that the general public knows about it uh, is really important um, for all of us. Okay, I won't ask you when will this end, but I do wanna ask you as a final question, how does this end? What does it look like um, at the end in the, in the terminal stages of, of the COVID-19 crisis? You know, I think what will ha- not happen is what people want, which is I don't think it's going to end with a bang. You know, I, I think there was this desire that on July 4th, we could say it's over. Everyone can just go go about their lives or on June 15th, it's over. I, I don't think it is going to end that way. I think it will end more with a whimper, as they say, that um, we will have more and more people vaccinated, that we will reduce spread more and more. Um, that we will always be a little nervous about what's going on abroad, or at least for a long time. Treatments will get better. Um, the amount of immunity in the community will get higher. Um, and then gradually people will go back to more of their normal life, which to a certain extent we have started to do. Um, and those of us uh, working, especially in the communicable disease part of public health, will continue to watch very carefully um, to make sure that there isn't another variant coming um, and that we really are on top of things and that also we're on top of the next thing and prepared for the next thing. I mean, we there we have COVID-19, which again, we had all always worried about a little bit, um, but you know, we also have SARS and MERS and we did have to gear up for those um, as well. Luckily they were not as contagious and did not spread as much. And what do we bring with us into the post-COVID world? For example, for the general public, do we um, uh, bring with us our masks when we go indoors? Do you imagine that will be part of our new daily routine? You know, it's interesting just before the pandemic, well, actually, right as the pandemic was starting, I was with my family in Tokyo and many people wore masks. And um, someone asked us, uh, do these work? And I remember talking um, with my family, which my mother is also an infectious disease doctor, saying, well, you'd have to wear them all the time. You know, you couldn't take them off to eat or talk on the phone or, um, and someone else in my family saying, oh, Americans would never do that. <laughs> um, and, you know, times have changed. And I, I suspect, I think, you know, Asia has seen other pandemics and have carried with them for a variety of reasons, not only infectious you know, that some people wear masks. And I suspect that we will as well, that some people um, will continue to wear masks. Um, and it will protect them from other things. You know, last year, we also didn't see any flu. Um, granted, we'd also closed the schools, but um, which hopefully we will never do again. Um, but yeah, so I think that some people will always wear masks. Do you think closing the schools was a mistake? I think that um, I understand why we did it in the beginning. Um, I do think that, you know, there are risks and benefits to every intervention. Um, I think that 
the spread is much less among children and that we definitely know now that you can control COVID and have schools open, you can't have zero transmission, but it's, it, you can, there are things you can do. Um, when you say, was it a mistake? It's like anything else. We learned as we went. Um, but I also think there were a lot of consequences to closing the schools, not all of which are infectious. Um, and that those also need to be balanced against, um, against that intervention. The kids do, unlike with flu, the kids don't seem to be the um, vector that's transmitting COVID the most. Um, and they don't seem to be at the highest risk, but not being in school was um, really not good for many children. Um, so that's why I'm hoping we'll never have to do it again. Well, that's the kind of judicious cost-benefit analysis that we expect of a wise public health official. Um, uh, thank you so much, Dr. Sharon Walter. It's been a real pleasure to be with you, and this has been an illuminating conversation. Thank you so much for making time out of your schedule and really for all the work you do for uh, the public. We appreciate it greatly. Hey, my pleasure, and thank you for sharing the information. Thank you for listening to Then and Now, a podcast by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. You can learn more about our work or share your thoughts with us at our website, luskincenter.history.ucla.edu. Our show is produced by David Myers and Maya Ferdman, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening.